I am thrilled to announce that An Actor Despairs is partnering with a wonderful CBD company called Kind Farms. Everyone out there has heard of CBD. I started taking it a few years ago when I first started getting sober and to help with my anxiety. Sadly, as one can do, I was overtraining in the gym, and a friend recommended a topical and a tincture to help with the pain. I tried it. It was okay. However, recently, I was introduced to a product that has really changed my life. Not only has it helped me with anxiety, but I am stronger than I have ever been. I'm able to carry out lifts my body used to prevent me from doing. Kind Farm products have single-handedly changed my life athletically and personally. They utilize 100% local licensed farmers, organic cultivation, and CO2 extraction for superior CBD. Kind Farms is turning CBD to a kind alternative to pharmaceuticals. Let's transform tobacco row into hemp row. If you want to get involved, please reach out. Together, we can make a difference. You can use my code RYAN10 for 10% off. You can find them on Instagram at Kind Farms Inc. All one word. That's K I N D P H A R M S I N C. And their website is kindfarmsinc.com. Once again, my code for 10% off is Ryan10. And now, let's get started with today's show. Welcome to An Actor Despairs. I'm your host, Ryan Perez. Today on An Actor Despairs, I am so excited because we have a very special episode that's a little bit different from what we usually do. We have guest Alex Amancio, who is the creative director on the Assassin's Creed video games, that being Assassin's Creed Revelations and Assassin's Creed Unity. He was the creative director, which is the equivalent of showrunner at Ubisoft on these games, and has since created his own company called Reflector Entertainment. And they're going to launch a cross-sector game, book, multimedia project called Unknown 9 that I'm so excited to talk to him about. It's an amazing episode. And for those of you that are interested in gaming and other forms of entertainment, it's a really unique perspective in how you start this whole journey. Here it is. Alex Amancio, welcome to An Actor Spares. How are you doing, brother? Good. Yourself? I'm really good, man. You know, I, I had a good workout today, so I'm in a good mood. I, I just was sick. But, uh, man, I did so much research on you and what you've done with, like, as a, as a storyteller, like, with let alone your company, Reflector Entertainment, but at mm-hmm. Ubisoft and with Assassin's Creed and, and the games. Like, I, I'll be 100% transparent. I've never been a gamer, but I've had a vast appreciation. The only games I ever played was Tony Hawk's Pro Skater, or like Grand Theft Auto to kill hookers and get as many police out. But uh, I don't know what that says about me, but I'll ask my therapist. But man, I, I really appreciate like optically what you were able to do with like unity and revelations, like let alone the Paris, like just, it, it, it's amazing. You know, I, I've, I've heard for a long time from people that I really respect in the business that the narratives are vastly superior in games than they are in movies. And I believe it because like the, let's, we live in a time where corporate property remains supreme in in entertainment and it's, it's Marvel and, you know, copyrighted material, but you know, in gamer world, I feel like there's still niche culture that you can explore and that leaves really cool room for storytelling. So I'm, I'm so curious to talk to you about, how you got started into all this and how you kind of built your way. But if, if you don't mind, if we could go to the very beginning, 
let talk to me about growing up. Yeah, uh, look, I grew up in uh, in uh, Montreal, which is um, <clears throat> uh, I had the it's chance actually because Montreal being a sort of a. Uh, a collision of two cultures. There's the French culture, the English culture. I think it's it's provided Montrealers with a, a very specific um, sort of like dual lens through which we see the world. And I think this is one of the secrets of, uh, of uh, Montreal, um, why it's such a, an important epicenter for creativity, especially in the video game world. But uh, it goes even beyond that. I mean, Montreal is also the uh, birthplace of Cirque du Soleil. It's, uh, it's home to a, a burgeoning uh, film industry, special effects industry. And I, I think that's like a, a large portion of that is due to this collision of two ways of thinking, which gets people to, uh, to, to sort of see things from uh, a different perspective. Yeah. And then, and I feel like I, from what I've heard from artists, friends that live in Canada, they're much more supportive of the arts there. Like they give grants to yeah. filmmakers and artists. Is that true? It is. It is. Yeah. And um, uh, yeah, I think there's a, a really good equilibrium between uh, the business aspect of it, which is obviously where, you know, we need to make money if something isn't profitable. It, it long term, it's not viable. Yeah. But there's a, there's a good balance between that and also empowering emerging artists to create their craft, because a lot of times it's it's through original and not necessarily very business viable craft yeah. that you you get the 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 leaders of tomorrow i mean like look one, one need only look to george lucas the the first film yeah. that he created thx 1138 i mean look god knows that's never going to be something that's financially viable but it it that experimentation is what essentially uh, allowed him to sort of like step towards the next leg of his life which is um reinventing the model uh, so to speak that's amazing. And then I'm curious, like growing up, were, you, were your parents artists at all or? Uh, they weren't. Uh, uh, so my dad, um, he's been, um, you know, from like three or four generations back uh, in the uh, in the car business. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And my mom's in banking. So um, I actually started off my uh, my, my path is going uh, I was initially initially going to go into uh, the sciences. I, I'm a, I'm a physics buff. I've always loved physics. And that uh, makes total sense. That was, was going to be my yeah. life, right? And, you know, like, uh, as often is the case, my parents said, you know what, you know, you like, you like uh, writing, you like, uh, you know, like, I, I, I drew a lot, I played instruments. So they're like, you, arts are always going to be a part of your life. And you can draw upon them for inspiration and, you know, use them as hobbies, but then get a real job, you know, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, that's how I thought my life was going to play out. And then, um, I, I went to see this movie called Jurassic Park. Oh God, the best. And my mind was blown with, I mean, for the first time we could, we could create stuff in our minds and execute them with the help of computers to uh, a level that was essentially indistinguishable uh, to the human eye from, from something that's real. And I, that's when I like left everything behind and, tried to find wh- where I could learn this new craft yeah, uh, and started learning about uh, 3d animation. And uh, I-, I wanted to create, I wanted to create worlds essentially. And this was the first time that I saw um, a clear path for me, how to achieve that. Totally. And, and, and talk to me at what moment in your life, were you an undergrad? Were you in high school? Like when, when did this happen? I was like, uh, I think I was probably 19 years old. Uh, so you, so, you were maybe in your first year. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, uh, like going on, you know, science was going to be my thing. And then I just left everything behind. I, I, I dropped out and, and, wow. and found this, uh, this, cause you couldn't get any, you couldn't, you couldn't learn computer graphics back then. 
yeah. in school. It was so emergent. So I, I essentially found this school, this private school that would give, a, um, I think it was like this 10-month crash course of uh, learning the basics of 3D graphics. And was, was Adobe a thing yet at this point? Uh, no, it was, uh, it was, uh, th- there were two major companies doing it. Uh, so soft image and, yeah. uh, and, uh, alias power animator. Uh, they, and, these were the and are either still operating today or yeah, yeah they are, they are. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, they are. Uh, and, uh, yeah. And so, uh, alias became Maya. So it's, uh, it, it's still one of the, and soft image got sort of got absorbed, but Maya still exists. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, and, and so I, I did the course, and afterwards, uh, the um, I, I tried getting a job like uh, in in something creative. I wanted to to pursue this. Like, how can I now use this knowledge? It's either going to be in films or in games. And yeah. uh, I ended up getting a job at a small gaming company. Uh, entered uh, on the art side, ended up managing the art team on a, a small art team on a tennis game. Wow. Knew, knew nothing about Dennis. Um, what, what, what mechanism are we talking like Super Nintendo or what, what me first Xbox first. Oh, wow. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Wow. So, uh, you know, worked on the game and, uh, it was a small company. So a lot of people like, like have to wear many hats, you know, like you don't have enough money to do everything you want to do. So, you know, if, if something, if you want something done and there's nobody to do it, well, you could either like, just like draw an X on it or do it yourself. Yeah. So um, I had to very quickly in my career start uh, essentially stretching out my, my, uh, my talents, um, uh, pick, pick, picked up some writing skills uh, very quickly, uh, some technical skills on the art side, started getting interested in, in, in the whole experience part of the game uh, of the game, not just the art side. Yeah. And then um, essentially went from that small company to a much larger company called Ubisoft uh, where yeah. I, I essentially uh, was assigned as art director on a game called Far Cry 2. Wow. Uh, and I, I started like really pushing the envelope of everything visual. Uh, you know, how can we recreate real dynamic weather patterns, uh, natural elements that would actually react to the player, not just static, actually, yeah. you know, stuff that you could burn, stuff that, that could be affected by the wind. Um, you know, and the so, way the way light, you know, it optically yeah. reflects through a taxi. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It, you know how to how to create how to simulate surfaces like stone, metal, but not just with with static uh, uh, pictures, but with with, uh, with real dynamic materials. And um, and then you know, like well, that was a, quite a success. Afterwards, I I decided to again to expand my knowledge, and yeah. I asked Ubisoft, look, I. I think I'm, I'm, I'm ready to, uh, to, to, to go to the next step. And I'd like to creative direct the game and creative direction is, is, uh, similar to, uh, what a showrunner would do on TV. You're, so you're, you're managing the whole team. Yeah, exactly. You're, yeah. you're, you're, yeah. The, you're the, the creative managing the whole creative of the, of the team. And, um, and, uh, uh, started doing that on Assassin's Creed and, um, yeah. So, uh, that's how I sort of, like uh, evolve towards the role of creative director in games. And while you were building your way, were you, uh, you know, with that Jurassic Park cathartic experience, were you immersing yourself in reading screenplays, like reading novels? Like what was your experience? Because you're a storyteller, you know, I'm so curious how that, how that evolved. Yeah. uh, So of course, reading is a big part of it. Reading screenplays, reading books, um, you know, um, I think that it's, it's through, it's through, 
absorbing all of that, the greatness that was done by other people that, that uh, one gets to perfect their craft. And I, I've also, even while I was uh, creative directing uh, Revelations, which is the first Assassin's Creed that I did, uh, I was in parallel actually writing the first uh, pilot that I have ever written for, for TV. I was, I, was, I was just doing it for fun. It's wow. something that, that I was, it's a medium that always interested me. So I wanted to see where I could take it. So a lot of practice and a lot of uh, uh, just if you love something, doing it isn't a chore. And I think yeah. it's through doing and through refining that you you perfect your 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 craft. Yeah, I totally agree. And, yeah, and talk yeah. talk to me as you were building this. Like, did did you feel that this was your calling? Like, I imagine if you were doing physics, you would have been miserable. Like, you know, it must have it must have felt great to be doing what you love. Yeah, definitely. And, and again, like that's the, the real the real uh, um, measure of if, if what you're doing is what you love, is what you're truly passionate about, is if you don't count the time you spend on it, right? If it's yeah. just something that you, you as soon as you, you hit a challenge, all you want to do is crack it and, and push for more. And you're always looking for the next challenge, right? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I strongly believe that excellence isn't something you, that you attain. It's something, yeah. it's a constant moving target. It's something that you have to strive for constantly. And sometimes in rare moments, you might get a glimpse of excellence, but it's fleeting, right? You never, I don't think you ever achieve that, that excellence. And, yeah. and actually, I think any artist, um, I think that your, your, your life's path is, is chasing that that um, impossible target? Yeah, of course. Because if you attain it, what's the point? Of, of yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. And I'm curious, yeah. you know, like to, to help the audience understand because I know there's so many people out there that are interested in, in gaming, building, gaming design. You know, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I went to NYU to School of the Arts, and the year I went there, they introduced the game design program. I think now mm-hmm. it's like one of the foremost in the United States, but at the time, that was like a pretty, you know revolutionary thing for a, 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 a first degree university to kind of establish that in the early 2000s. How did you find this path? Like, was it a natural progression or did you have some kind of uh, advisors along the way? It was pretty much of a natural progression. Uh, you know, like you, you, and I mean, this was stated by, by many talented and smart people in the past. Um, you know, like you, you can, you can only, you never know where the, the the decisions that you take are going to lead you. You know, it's 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 easier when in hindsight to to see a clear path. Yeah. But when you're doing it, it's just you're following your gut and you're you're following your heart and you're always you know taking the plunge. You know, like yeah. if I had to if I had to give any any sort of advice to anybody would be <clears throat> usually your your gut knows and and taking the plunge is the and sacrificing and risking it all for passion is the only real way of, of reaching it, right? You, you, you know, there's always a, a level of sacrifice. So, so it, it's sometimes a lonely path to yeah. get, to get to where you want to go. But I think that if you always follow that, that, that gut feeling in your heart, that's how you know that you might be on the right path. And sometimes you succeed and sometimes you don't. Uh, so for me, you know, finding that path was, was a very, um, was it was a very uh, educational experience where where you know like learning to always you know trust yourself to to always never doubt and to to always look for um for for, for the silver lining in any any decision um mm-hmm. is key and then i mean look uh, 
we, we live the video game industry is uh, and the video the craft of actually making games is is a nascent one right so we're we're, we're still learning the, the um, more or less the uh, the rules of what it is to create a game you know if we were to compare this to hollywood we would be sort of like in the 30s or something right now right yeah. where yeah you have certain classics or maybe 40s certain classics that uh, that have emerged but you know, we've yet to hit the limits of what we can do with the scrap. We're still learning it. You know, you, and you mentioned a, a bit earlier that, uh, you know, writing uh, games is is more challenging than, uh, you know, or a film. Or, so I think that they're all challenging, right? They're, they're, they're all, they're, they're, each of them, they, they are their own medium. And yeah. I think that if you, if you craft the story uh, to that specific medium, then, then they're, they're their own unique thing and they each have their own challenges. Um, yeah. So games are, are, are a lot less economical than a film, for example. You know, films, you, you typically have a, a 60 hour like times two, like you have a, 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 you know, a hundred minute, you have a hundred minute uh, 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 time span. Yeah. And that, that hundred minute time span is, is extremely valuable real estate because you have to tell entire story arcs in a very constrained um time frame yeah. which means it's a very technical medium right you need to hit different acts you need to hit different uh beats for your characters so so that's why uh i think that the challenge with that specific medium is is how to how to be original within those constraints and how to to be economical in what you show and what you choose not to show so that yeah. you're true to that 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 story that you're trying to tell in that very you know compressed amount of time yeah games have a lot more but uh, a lot more time, you know, sometimes games have, you know, a hundred hours plus yeah, some experience. people, it takes six months to a year to complete a game. Exactly. Right. Yeah. But then, th but it's also another kind of story, right. Um, rather than being um, a roller coaster ride, like a film where you're, you're going on a very linear perspective uh, from, from your main predetermined trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. From your main protagonist, yeah, you're essentially creating stories where you're hopefully engaging people at an emotional and intellectual level. So the types of stories that you need to be telling, and the types of choices that you need to be confronting the player, and sometimes the the contrasts between what the player needs to physically do and the moral implications of that become all that more important because you have that 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 uh, idea of agency and player yeah. player agency right so it's 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 just a different kind of uh of uh, of focus and the sheer volume that you have to also write in order to populate an entire world yeah. is in itself just very grueling right um it's massive i love the comparison that you just made and i'm also curious for people that don't know for games you know for example a movie could take you know, on a lower end, a month, and on a larger end, six months, you know, for Jurassic Park, what does a game take to develop? It can take anywhere from, look, I, I will give you two examples that, that uh, on two Assassin's Creed that I worked on. Revelations took us 10 months, but 10 months is not your typical dev time. This was uh, sort of a mission impossible that, that we had. Um, you know, so it, it was... I think that the only reason that we pulled it off was because we had a, a, a brand new team of very, very, very dedicated people that wanted to prove that they were, uh, that they had what it took, uh, to be in this, uh, on this, on this franchise. Yeah. And, um, and also we, we were lucky enough to have an extremely, um, uh, dedicated, uh, a group of people that were completely singular 
in our vision to reach a certain objective, right? So I would say 10 months, especially for a game of that scope is very short. Wow. And then I can give you an example for Unity. Unity was um, about five years dev time. Uh, five so, years. Yeah. So, um, you know, you, a typical game will take around 24 to 36 months of dev time. Uh, but depending on, you know, like GTAs can take a lot longer. They can take closer to five or seven years. Um, it really depends on the size of the team. It depends on the ambition of the project. You know, indie games can be completed in a couple of months if you want to make just a small indie game that, that isn't overly ambitious in terms of scope. Yeah. But the bigger the game is, the more, uh, the more of an open world uh, that you're creating, um, the more time and more people it takes. Uh, just to give you an example on uh, just a, an idea of the number of people that worked on Unity, uh, we're talking about a, a, around a thousand people across 10 studios. Wow. Yeah. yeah. That's amazing. And so how, as a creative director, are you able to, to I don't want to say micromanage because that has bad connotations, yeah, yeah, but yeah. how are you able to manage that many? Like I know, yeah. for example, Game of Thrones has seven units. You know what I yeah. mean? But they have yeah, to... Yeah. Yeah, like how are you, how how are you able to do that? Um, look, uh, I, I've often compared the experience to uh, you know those uh, those stage magicians where you have these sticks and you have these plates that are spinning. And, oh yeah, uh, they, they run around and it's, it starts wobbling and you need to spin. Yeah. So I mean, that's the closest thing that I could I could compare it to. It becomes it becomes a um, you know the first thing you have to do is make sure that the vision is very clear to everybody. And then once you once you formulated that vision, it becomes evangelizing that vision. Like the the you need to respond to, to give uh, ownership to the each of the owners of each department and each different studio, so that they first understand what the vision is, and then you need to give them the responsibility of maintaining it. Yeah. And once you've done that, it's just a matter of continuously over communicating to make sure that you keep everything aligned because no matter how small the divergence even if it starts off small as you grow it in time it becomes very wide wow. so maintaining the vision um like as close as possible to one singular vision is yeah. key but honestly i mean there's many philosophies at you know i for one believe that there there is um i think it, it is a lot more um it's a lot more effective to keep teams a bit smaller yeah. and to just, if need, if need be to work them a little bit longer. Yeah. Because I think it, it ultimately the product uh, is, is a, is a more personal one, right? Yeah. You're what you're creating is more, it, it, there's more of everybody in them. Uh, when you, you, you put, you assign too many people onto any project uh, it becomes much harder to keep um, the soul, you know, yeah. the, uh, yeah, I I totally understand with what you're saying, and I'm I'm very curious, you know, because now these uh you know choose your own adventure games are are the, are the norm, you know. But I kind of grew up with like NBA Jam and Mortal Kombat. What was the Jurassic Park equivalent in the gaming world that really set off the narrative sector of games? Oh, the, the, I think there's been many. I think there's been many milestones um, across the years, uh, throughout the years that that have been. Um, you know, sort of like game changers that have, um, Pun that have uh, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah of course, uh, 
you know, the first one, um, look, uh, and, and this is like going way back to, to like, uh, to, to my childhood, but the first game that was, that essentially showed you that you can make games in a different way where, um, it, it could be the user's experience and not just, um, uh, like a mini game yeah. was a game like Legends of Zelda. Yeah, and, totally. Operating and, of time. Yeah, that was the, I played that whole one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and even the first one. And this was um, this was the first time that we were that, that the gaming industry was creating an open world, yeah. so to speak, where it was up to the player to find what he had to do next, he or she had to do next. And um, how do you convey this to players when before that time? Games were all about like Donkey Kong, a level jumping and getting to the end, right? Yeah. So, so um, the creator of this game, Miyamoto, like had a brilliant idea. He started the game off with there was the first the the, the, the first window in Legend of Zelda. Yeah. There was your character, and there was a cave, and you know when you when you look when you started playing, well, the first thing you did was you were attracted to the cave, so like let's go into the cave. So you went there. And a wizard, essentially, there was this old man or a wizard or like a, a, an old sage, and there was a sword right under him. And when you moved towards the sword, you picked it up and the wise man said, you know, take this, uh, you will need it on your adventure. Wow. Well, what that conveyed to players is, look, you've just acquired something. This yeah. game is different. Everything you do here, you're going to need to figure out and to acquire yourself. And with this yeah. very simple um setup he essentially messaged players look explore find discover it's up to you to determine what to do next not the game to tell you yeah so that was one the certainly the first milestone in terms of video games i think that that really changed everything wow and then i'm curious you know because like i love i love your metaphor for like if you know games are 1940s hollywood you know for example we went from like you know, Charlie Chaplin kind of can't be acting to a much more grounded, nuanced, like, you know, the lost weekend kind of, you know, and I'm curious as games, if I'm staying on that metaphor, please, I hope I'm not losing people here, but the, um, let's say the one-to-one ratio of real world, like what you did with Paris, you know, I've been to Notre Dame. I know that, or, you know, rest in peace. I, I had been there but I know the whole steps really well because I've spent so much time there. Mm-hmm. What Was that always like a, um, a desire for game developers to be able to simulate the real world? Was that, you know, and technology just didn't catch up with it in time? Yeah, that, I, I think that uh, developers for the longest time, I mean, there, there's, uh, there, there's uh, um, two ways to see that question, I think. I think that developers have always wanted realism. Yeah. Um, so even when you're doing something that's very sci-fi or even horror, like uh, Doom, right? Uh, yeah. Doom was actually played, another I, one of the Doom and Duke Nukem were my things. <laughs> so, so, so that was an, that yeah. was another milestone, right? For yeah. The first time the invention of the first person perspective. I guess I am a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that was a, an amazing milestone. For the first time, there is no character. All you see is your hands, and yeah. it's up. It's you, right? Yeah. So, but the 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 desire was always to how do we represent real like uh, realism in the real world in, in as close as possible as we can. So yeah. physics and so that you can have that immersion. If totally. it looks real and it feels real. Sort of disbelief still being yeah. the same goal. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, and we've, we've 
like technology has often been driven by the desire to simulate the real world, right? So, so that's definitely always been an ambition. Uh, now, not all games, like all games have wanted to, to get as close as possible to realism, yeah. but not all, ga- not all games have wanted to simulate the actual real world. Totally. In the case of Assassin's Creed, that's always been the case. Um, and when when the game was first, when the uh, the, the the IP, the brand, the the world was being created by by Ubisoft Montreal, um, there was always the um, um, you know very early on when the first team was actually building the game, there was this question that was being asked by marketing, like like do people actually care about history? History is not important. People don't fans gamers don't care about history. Yeah, and the 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 game the dev the dev team always were fervent um, defenders of the idea that the reason that people don't care is because they don't know how cool history is. Yeah, and if you make history cool, if you show them what it actually was, the French Revolution, fans, yeah, then fans would care, and and that was proven. Like uh, like Assassin's Creed made history cool, wow. and and from from the first one. Um, it was always the idea of of shedding a new window on on maybe sometimes forgotten parts of history and yeah. on pushing those limits of realism further and further and further in terms of the way that the world was represented. Yeah. Unity, I think, was was probably uh, one of the great accomplishments of the franchise because for the first time we created a one for one replica of, I of saw the city. That. I don't know if you know this, but the trailer has like 45 million views and like yeah, 250,000 yeah. likes. And, yeah, and, yeah. and you, you narrate it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So, so th- I think that was a, a, an amazing accomplishment of being able to actually like allowing people to imagine you can literally explore Paris as it was in the French Revolution, along with crowds of up to 10,000 people and just be just be in the revolution. So I think that that, that is definitely something that uh, that idea of allowing people to teleport back in time or to yeah. a different planet and existing there as somebody else. I think it's part of the, it's part of the, the true magic of video games. And, and, and optically, how do you render that? Because like, you know, yes, we know Paris is, is historically mm-hmm. been, you know, minus fires and, and world wars, Certain parts have been the same, but how how are you able to like? I know Google Earth has a great job of of having mm-hmm. displays and renderings, but as mm-hmm. a developer, how do people how are people able to to doubt, you know develop seventeenth century France? So that was actually pretty challenging because Paris was completely like uh, torn down and rebuilt by Napoleon III. So Napoleon wow. III uh, hired a guy called Ausman. and Ausman's job was to make Paris uh, a capital worthy of. France's place in the world, which was like a leader in culture and everything. Yeah. So, so another le- little less known reason why they did that is because there were a few riots in Paris and making the tearing down the small medieval streets and making like wide boulevards makes it difficult for uh, revolutions and makes it difficult for people wow. to riot. Oh, no way. That's <laughs> so, amazing. <laughs> so, the Paris of Unity is actually a Paris that nobody can see. Like certain parts of, of Paris today were left untouched by Ausman. Yeah. And those, par- those parts of Paris are similar in Unity. But the rest, what you see, except for the, the, the main landmarks that were never torn down, obviously, yeah. the rest of Paris is you get to see a Paris that you can no longer see today. So to do it, we had to um, uh, look 
back and find old maps of the city, old plans, architectural uh, designs, architectural designs like uh, like blueprints and stuff wow. like that. So all of that was painstakingly done by by like a team of of amazing artists. No- Notre Dame, by the way, took one modeler. It took her a year, one year, to model like 3D sculpt Notre Dame. And that's excluding the people that then worked on building the materials and the the the, the, the stained glass, just the, the actual and the cobblestone and all the yeah. Yeah. wow. Just the, the sculpting of it took about a year for one modeler. Yeah, took her about a year, twelve months. And if we're if we're staying with our movie metaphor, you know, yeah. I, I I just came from a, a Tony Hawk podcast because I was uh, I did play those games a lot, and he was I don't know if you know, but they just did a re-release of the games where they redid Tony Hawk one and two, and now it's been updated with like better you know AR and and much better uh, landscapes. But he was talking about how EA and Activision developed that game simultaneously together. And then EA broke off and developed a game called EA Skate and Activision State with Tony Hawk. And then they both kind of stopped because they realized they were, you know, fighting for a smaller piece of the, of the pie. With mm-hmm. these, you know, DIY or uh, POV games, you know, how is it, you know, like we know, for example, Jurassic Park, a company like Universal gives Steven Spielberg and George Lucas $120 million and they have a year to two from pre-production to production to post to turn it around. Is it, is it the same with the, with a game? Games are different because typically uh, um, the, the way that um, traditionally films evolved and the way that studios evolved is very different. You know, games are, 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 their own thing uh, in, in terms of, uh, of industry. And even though there's elements that are similar to television or film, there's also the software component. So a lot of them, the way these companies were built is, is sometimes closer to the software world than the cinema world. So rather than having uh, studios, you know, finance films and giving them to external directors or external uh, like collaborators, typically the crew of a, of a, of a, of a, of a, not a TV show, but of a film is a, is an external crew that will be hired. You know, the studio will mandate a director and will finance, and then the, the the director will form his crew, his or her crew. In the case of video games, it's pretty much internal. So, you know, a company like EA or Activision or Ubisoft will want to do a game, and all of the people working on them, including the creative director, are employees of the company, which yeah. makes the the relationship a bit different between. Um, the company and the creative. Uh, yeah. So the mandate, it, and I, this is very different for each company, um, you know, but, uh, but it's, it is different than, than the film world. And then narratively, because you said you can have a hundred hours of experience, do you guys then storyboard every one or do you, do you write out the screenplay of each narrative and then you give it and like they implement it and hire act? Mm-hmm. Like, how does that part work? No, I mean, that's also different. And, and depending on the kind of game and even depending on the company, each company has their their own formula. Yeah. So, um, you know, and then the, the kind of game that you're making will also dictate how you do that. Um, if you're making a very narrative game, like a single, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a one player, third person action adventure title like um, Last of Us or mm. uh, Uncharted, then you're obviously like that 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 linear experience is going to be a lot more important than in a game like Assassin's Creed where you're actually uh instead of telling one linear story you're 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 there will be a linear story that's told but you're trying to um you're favoring 
um, agency in an open world. Yeah. Right? So typically, um, if you look at if you look at um, how you would do it in a typical Assassin's Creed game, um, the main storyline and the cinematics that constitute your main storyline are most of the time storyboarded. And this is what you you sort of like you quantify and then you 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 plan and you block and yeah. you 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 create animatics as you would a film. But a lot of um, the other narrative elements um, that you would get in a level, like scripted events, this is, you know, for example, you're, you're walking around the game and a, one of the characters will ask you to go and, you know, fetch uh, uh, some keys or, you know, a lot of those things are going to be done a little bit more on the fly, depending on, on um, what your needs are for a specific mission. Yeah. So it really depends. There's different tiers, right? The, the, the top level tier, the most... Um, high resolution or the most important narrative beats of the game, the, the main path beats are going to be done closer to a pipeline that would resemble a film in, yeah. in, 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 in the sense that you're going to storyboard them and you're going to, you're going to block them and then you're going to, you're going to uh, create animatics. But a lot of the other, like what, what makes the, your, your, the bulk of your narrative experience in the game is a little bit more freehand, more, more uh, done by the level designers and other people. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to move on to Reflector, but I want to say before we, we finish on this, thank you for what you did. I mean, I uh, especially even me, you know, as someone who didn't play those games, just watching the trailers and, and the pure optics and, and the landscapes, I mean, the attention to detail. I mean, thank you for, for creating such a, you know, I, 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 I'm an actor, but I, I'm a storyteller. You know, that's what we all, that's what we all are. And so thank you for, for your service. But I'm really curious to talk to you about what you're doing now. And, and you're, you started a company called Reflector Entertainment. And mm-hmm. you have a product called Unknown 9 that mm-hmm. sadly, like a lot of other projects, have kind of hit by the wayside of COVID. I'd like mm-hmm. to start with Reflector and then we'll dig into Unknown 9. Sure. Um, Reflector is much uh, is a continuation of... Uh, of in spirit of what I think that um, I, I originally started working on uh, at Ubisoft with, uh, with Assassin's Creed. So, um, you know, very early on in my collaboration with, with assassins, I realized that um, what we were creating uh, was, was bigger than a game. Uh, I felt that we were working on um, a modern, a modern mythology. I think that the, the, the themes that we were exploring and uh, the world that we were shaping um, were were too big to be confined by a single medium, and um, you know we had um, we had an internal uh, IP team uh, mm-hmm. like uh, like or, or story world world team, yeah. And that internal world team w- was working with uh, uh, different collaborators on comic books, on novels, and uh, you know during my time there as creative director on Assassin's Creed, I collaborated very closely with those guys because I really felt that the story that we were telling in the games. Uh, should be told through other media. So yeah. instead of instead of working on a novel that was just telling the same story that we were telling in the game, I instead tried favoring stories that were complementary. So by reading the novel, maybe you got a different perspective on certain characters that you didn't get to, you know. Ah, and it, it gave you more nuance to the story. Exactly. You know, yeah. like in, in Unity, there was this character called Elise, uh, uh, and she was uh, in and out of the game, and sometimes she would disappear for for a lot of, uh, you know, for long 
beats. And I always wanted to tell her story. You know, what was she doing and what was her struggle? Like yeah. while while Arnaud, the character in the in the game, was was trying to uh, essentially to, to do his stuff in the game, what was she yeah. doing and how did it all tie up? So yeah. having a story that was seen through her eyes from her perspective was super important to me. When I worked on on Revelations, we had two two of the iconic characters of, of the of the IP, Ezio and Altair, and they were both sort of separated by about 300 years, but their stories were converging in, in, yeah. in this game narrative. And I really wanted to tell the story, like what was happening in the background with these two characters. So we actually created two novels um, that went along with Revelations that were telling the story of these two characters uh, that wasn't being told in, in the game, creating a parallel between the the, the lives and, and the, the the overall and ultimate ambitions of these two characters. Yeah. So, and when when we started looking at the story of Assassin's Creed through that lens of a much broader story than just the game, we really started seeing um, reaction from the fan base. Yeah, the, the IP was taking on a life of its own. Assassin's yeah. Creed was growing like a wildfire, and I really felt Michael Fassbender was, loved it. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so I, I really felt that, that, that we were on to something that um, in the world of today, I think that limiting ourselves or seeing our craft through the lens of the medium yeah. is a mistake. I think that today, all of the, the channels are collapsing. Fans yeah. no longer have, you know, like these things like that, you know, that we that never leave our sides. Yeah. Phones have become essentially windows and doors into any kind of medium. I can read a book. I can read a comic. You can do a 3D I, photo. You know. uh, exactly. I can, yeah. I can play yeah. a game and I can watch a film. So why are we then not seeing what we're creating, you know, for what it is truly universes and worlds? That's what fans yeah. want today. The medium is just a means of getting into that world. So yeah. Reflector is all about that. What if you were to create an entertainment company that wasn't, uh, that didn't identify itself through a medium, like a video game company or a film company. Or it was cross-sector. It wasn't yeah. limited to one medium. Exactly. What if what we're creating is a modern mythology? And then I we're using that. all of these different channels, like uh, just ways of, of getting it to the audience. So that's what Reflector is about. Um, so the first world that we're working on is called Unknown Nine. And as you mentioned, it was a little bit uh, uh, delayed by covid we yeah. were supposed to launch in a big way at South by Southwest. We were, you know, preparing With, something. An interactive, like two week uh, event for for yeah. anyone that attended. Correct? Absolutely. We yeah. were, uh, you know, opening up the entertainment uh, uh, a portion of South by Southwest with with uh, uh, an amazing party, and then we were taking over the streets of Austin with this uh, immersive live event. Yeah. And uh, we were coordinating. And and by the way, the the immersive live event for me is is just another way of telling the story right so uh, we weren't seeing it as like a marketing ploy we were really yeah. seeing it as as a uh, um a legitimate storytelling device yeah. to, to to tell a story to the audience so i mean all of that stuff was paused because of covid we're we're, we're going to delay it uh, later in the year but we're still very much in line to present unknown nine amazing yeah and I would love to talk to you about this whole um, AR, VR, augmented immersion uh, phenomenon that we're going on. Like, you know, obviously we've seen it in Hollywood, like uh, Black Mirror did, I don't was it a season or an episode that was Choose Your Own Adventure? And yeah. I know certain movies are starting to do it. I, have you been to New York City recently? I've been. Uh, have you, well, before. Have you heard of Sleep No More? 
yes, I have. Did you go? Yes, many times. I, yeah. I know those guys very well. <laughs> oh, Punch Drunk. Oh, man, I love that. And and I think, you know, you know, now we're seeing immersion in theater, which is, you know, yeah. I think for, for a theater audience, you know, those tend to, I don't mean to sound rude, but they tend to be more geriatric, you know. So mm-hmm. now you're having, you know, young adults go to theater and having experience to like sleep no more than they have in Assassin's Creed. And, and I think it's creating this whole sector. There's one down the street from me called Ben Chi Fell, which is the story of Alice in Wonderland. But I'm curious mm-hmm. now with, you know, things like the Google Oculus and as, as technology has gotten further and further, how has mm-hmm. that affected your world and the way in which you present the cross-sector, uh, let's just call it multimedia? Yeah. So I think that um, VR and AR are... Um, are tools like any other. Um, could could you, know. you break down the difference just so for yeah. the audience? <laughs> sure. You know, VR essentially puts a, um, you know, a veil over your eyes. So it covers your, your eyesight and it, it, it replaces it with screens uh, where you can essentially transport people into uh, a different world, a different so, time, so, a different place. So the yeah. Oculus would be VR. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, and then you have uh, AR. AR is, think of it like augmented reality, right? That's what it is. It lets you see the world, but it can overlay things over the world. Kind of like Snapchat filters can add, you know, exactly. like, yeah, like, got it, got it. So Magic Leap or, or HoloLens from Microsoft, those are yeah. AR, yeah. right? So um, they're really good for two different things. Like if you really want to transport somebody into a different world, VR is great because you can literally replace the world with whatever world. And you I've want. had those. You really do feel like yeah. your, you know, your balance and your entire sense of gravity is totally out of. It's crazy. Yeah, and mix that in with uh, uh, you know uh, some fancy treadmill that allows you to sort of walk. Yeah. Uh, combine that with you know like uh, uh, air or heat. Yeah. Um, you know, it really can feel like you're, you're actually there. Imagine yeah. coming out of this tunnel and into this, you know, amazing valley and have the wind just hit you when you're in there. You, your brain truly believes that you're there. Um, yeah. Whereas AR is really good if you want to um, convey extra information. Yeah. So let's say I want to play detective and I want to have clues. I can literally have stuff, errors point into certain places and I can augment reality. Wow. Um, yeah, that's amazing. And so do you think, you know, VR, you know, because I know, like, if you go back to Terminator 2, you know, he's got VR. But now is AR going to be the, the future? I think they're good for two different things. Again, if, if you really want to transport somebody into a different world, I think VR is great. I think if you want people to remain in the real world, but you yeah. want to allow, you want to add uh, a gamification element or you want to add characters that aren't really there. Yeah. then AR is great. If you want to add, um, you know, a heads up display or a menu, like, yeah. uh, like you would have in a game in reality. Well, AR is great for that. Um, so I think that the, they're, they're, they're still in their infancy. I think can, that can you talk about the Madonna performance. Cause that was AR, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. So this is something that, you know, because reflector is all about, um, storytelling across all media. Yeah. Uh, it's important for me to uh, for, for it's important for me to for, for reflector to uh, stay up to date in everything that is emergent in terms of uh, in terms of media. So AR and VR are certainly emerging forms. So 
for us to sort of always remain on on the edge, on the fringe of what is being developed, uh, yeah. we sometimes take on like these R and D projects that allow us to to to, to essentially um, you know keep our expertise on the edge. Yeah, so, stay sharp. Totally. Exactly. So yeah. we had this uh, this opportunity to work with uh, Madonna on her big comeback uh, uh, song. And uh, we, we spoke with Madonna's people and they, they wanted to do a performance, that, but they wanted to do something that had never been done before. So we collaborated with her team to essentially bring to life uh, uh, simultaneous, many versions of Madonna simultaneously with her during a live performance. And wow. so what we did there was uh, real-time integration of augmented reality into live TV. So those characters, the audience couldn't see them, but we were actually integrating those personas directly into the live feed of the television um, as she was giving her performance, which, which was very innovative. Yeah. That's amazing. And uh, and speaking of performances, that kind of reminds me because I was there when it happened. I was uh, Stupid. I don't mean, I don't mean to, I was younger. I'm sober now, but I was at Coachella and yeah. two, Tupac hologram happened. Yeah. And I remember yeah. everyone was just like, Whoa, you know, I, everyone's obviously on drugs, but you know, it was, yeah, it was, yeah. it was quite a surreal experience. Yeah. And I remember everyone, you know, after Coachella ended for like a year was talking about holograms. Is that something that you think is going to become, you know, like as technology progresses and our televisions are, capable of more and more integration is that is that something you think will become um so i think that holograms i mean they've certainly been around for a long time it's something called pepper's ghost right it's done with uh, a sheet of glass and uh, you're projecting something on the glass and from from the audience's perspective you have a yeah you have a certain degree um so i think that as technology continues to improve and we're able to display um, um, holograms in more and more three-dimensional ways, right? Right now, Pepper's Ghost is a very old tech and it's it's literally flat. But I think that we're on the verge of being able to display stuff three-dimensionally. Once we're yeah. able to do that, I think that it's going to open up the door to a whole new uh, area of entertainment. Imagine yeah. just, just imagine walking into a stand-up club and uh, getting to uh, experience Richard Pryor from yeah. the right? Oh my God. Yeah. And, and you think that's going to be a thing? Like, you know, in 2030, we're going to see Kurt Cobain for two weeks at Madison Square Garden, you know? Why not? I mean, yeah. we can, technically, we could certainly do it. And even with AR, that's the yeah. thing with AR is that um, as as the glasses become more and more um, like um, like high tech in the way that yeah. they project the image, and as they become smaller and smaller, you know, today they're big clunky things. But 10 years from now, they might look and feel exactly like a pair of glasses or sunglasses that you put on. Yeah. When it when it gets there, then it becomes very easy for people to carry them around. Yeah. And then as the technology improves and you're able to make the images that they project more and more opaque, then I think that the um, the ability to, to to project content directly into your world and even people that are that are have passed. I mean, it's certainly going to be possible. Then it really depends on on, on whether the audience wants that uh, or not, and de- how to monetize it correctly. You know, that's, of course, yeah. And then I'm I'm, I'm very curious, you know, because I want to plug it proper. You know, for those interested, what what more can you say about Unknown Nine? Where can they go? Where can they mm-hmm. find out? How can they stay in touch? 
So uh, if they want to find out a little bit more about it, they can go to unknown9.com and they're going to get a little bit of a teaser. But um, and they should definitely register their emails because then, you know, once we start announcing stuff, they're going to get a, 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 you know, a little bit of a ping from us. But uh, stay tuned because end of this year, we're going to start announcing in a big way. And uh, just and that's unknown nine, nine, the number, not nine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. unknown nine dot com. And just for people uh, to get a sense of what it is. Uh, it's essentially a universe uh, that, that is uh, an occult thriller universe. It's all about uh, um, lifting the veil on the world and and uh, um, seeking the unknown. It's almost like imagine the world as we know it is a lot more magical than we give it credit for. And there's yeah. there's stuff at work right under our very eyes. And there's people at work that have been sort of guiding humanity towards a very specific goal. And Unknown Nine is all about that mystery. And it, it's, it's, uh, wow. it's very active, um, um, world rather than asking the audience to just be passive, uh, a passive audience. We're really encouraging the audience to be part of the mystery and unraveling it with us. I and love that. We're working on a novel trilogy, a comic book series, a podcast series, a video game, a series, uh, a TV series, a bunch of digital series. We have a, an online platform that we're, we're also developing. So this is going to be big. And uh, I think people are, are going to find it uh, uh, pretty cool. I can't wait. So I can like, you know, when it happens, you know, I'm going to be like, oh, that's my homie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, amazing, yeah. though. Um, you know, find a few questions for you, Alex. I'm, I'm so grateful for your time. And thank you for coming on. And um, I'm sorry if I asked you to expound on some things. I'm a, a little bit uh, uh, new to this world. So I just want to make sure I understand it correctly. But yep. what, what what's inspiring you now? You know, I feel like, you know, I, I kind of touched on this at the beginning of the podcast, like movies aren't as inspiring as they once were. And, and now television is, is interesting. But where, you know, the storytellers that, that you're interested in, what's inspiring you? Um, I get my inspiration from, from a, a whole bunch of places like, uh, television is certainly in a golden age right now. And yeah. uh, films are maybe in a little bit of a, a, a rut, but these things are cyclical. I, I, I wouldn't oh. write off films, um, like, uh, at this point, actually, I think that, you know, if you want to look for opportunity, you have to look to the places that aren't doing so well. Right. Yeah. So I think that maybe films are in a really good place for uh, a rebirth soon yeah. maybe a fresh take so um you know i think that uh you know my inspiration comes from like i i i, I love excellence i love it when um i just love quality stuff so whatever the genre whatever the medium as long as it's original fresh it's got a fresh fresh perspective and and there's excellence i'm in like i i love stories i love characters and i love you know like large sprawling worlds yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a real fanboy, if you will. So, um, yeah. you know, as soon as there's something that, that, uh, that touches upon all those points that I mentioned, I'm there. That's amazing. I love that. And, and for those young Alexes out there that are studying physics, but they love gaming <laughs> and they have no idea of how, of how to forge their path ahead, any, any words of wisdom, advice for them? I think that uh, if, you know, people follow their their passions and if they're they have to be willing to make the sacrifices come along with it because excellence is not something that you attain it's something that you strive for yeah. and as long as you have that mindset and as long as you know it feels right to you if if you if you work like crazy on something and it doesn't feel like work odds are you know you, you you're passionate about it then then if you follow that 
you know, worst comes to worst, if if success doesn't come in, in doesn't come in the timeline that you yeah. maybe thought it was going to come in, at least you're having fun and a hell of a ride, and yeah. that's what you can ask for to anybody. Like, just have fun. Yeah, yeah. The, the gift is doing what you love in this life, and that's what we absolutely. All yeah, Alex Montiel, thank you for coming on, man. This is one of my favorite episodes, and and let's do it again. Let come back on in January when when whenever this goes live. It's a deal, man. Anytime, right. man. It was a pleasure, brother. So much love. Thank yeah, you for yeah, coming yeah, on, yeah. and and to Thanks, continue. Man. Thanks, man. If you like the show, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening.